This is Monica Perez with a returning guest today, Jeremy Kuzmarov, author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming Again, The First Cold War as Tragedy, The Second as Farce, which I think definitely plays into one of the topics we're going to cover today. He is the managing editor of Covert Action Magazine. Jeremy and his team are keeping us apprised of the real stories behind the biggest events of the day. And as much as I respect Jeremy and his work, however, our ideologies are completely different. (laughs) Jeremy thinks government's legit. I've given up on the state completely. But in a post-ideological world of corruption and collusion, people of principle can still find common ground. So welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for going on this search for common ground with me. It's great to be with you. How are you doing? Uh, Pretty good. So I think we haven't spoken since December before your fundraiser, which I hope was successful. Didn't you have a good fun fundraiser in New York? Uh, yeah, we, we had a great time. And yeah, we're starting <laughs> to, I think, <laughs> build the uh, you know name brand for the Covert Action magazine. And yeah, we're looking for new writers. So if any of our you know viewers here, uh, we, you know, we can use all the support we can get as far as, you know, writers, financial support, uh, uh, anything uh, that you might be able to help us with. And I think, yeah, I mean, the corporate you know, media has failed the public and, uh, you know, we're an independent media outlet and even a lot of alternative media, uh, you know, uh, are compromised. And like these issues, you know, that we'll be discussing today, you really can't, can't trust them. They often, you know, uh, have either been infiltrated by intelligence agencies or they're advancing or they're, you know, intimidated or something, and they're not willing to uh, probe into the truth. And, and um, you know, like we'll be discussing the, um, you know, uh, shoot down the MH17 Malaysian airliner. And if you're reading the mainstream media, you would have the indication that the Russians were behind it when there's a ton of evidence uh, to indicate that that's not the case. So this is just one example of why we need outlets like Covert Action Magazine. We need a radio caster like Monica uh, to, you know, be widely heard because we're we're people who are seeking the truth uh, and we're not compromised and and bought off by corporations. Yeah, that's the thing. (laughs) I have, so I've been basically trying to separate even even people who journalists or media outlets who purport to tell the truth, there are limited hangouts out there and there are there are disinformation agents out there. There are fake whistleblowers and all this. And I have I have you know, I think most of the time I'm right and most of the time I think everything is fake. And I, I've been I've been right most of the time. So it's hard for me to find even outlets that say that they're digging into the deeper truth and find that that they really are. And I do with covert action, especially, I mean, I'm an avid reader of your articles and I really can never find fault with them. And I will say this MH17 story in particular demonstrates something that I think is valuable and being lost, which is I followed the MH17 story at the time. I followed the MH370 story, which was right before that, which I think was a real accident that was covered up. And they used the taint of the Malaysian airlines to um, to choose because I think MH17 was a false flag to choose Malaysia Airlines after the MH370 thing. And I was following the Ukrainian coup that the U.S. perpetrated against the democratically elected government there in 2014. And um, But with the MH17 story at the time, there were so many different details. It was very hard for me to really understand what the truth was. Like one thing that you go into, which is absolutely the essential fact is people are saying it was a Buke missile from the ground or it was an air-to-air missile or somebody was shot down. What happened to MH17? And in real time, I couldn't figure it all out. But now when I read, you revisited it because finally, and I loved this expression, the show trial, uh, the Dutch judge was, they came to a conclusion. That's what we want to talk about today. But you go back and you lay out all the facts and that's history. This is how history is really written and preserved. You take the real time events, you try to figure it out. You are, you know, on the one hand, you have to play the role of a newspaper, but you also, because nobody, although you do cite a couple of books that are absolutely historical or an attempt at very recent history, which is tricky in this particular case, I think you refer to a Dutch book and um, the other guy, was he 
American. I think he was American. Um, the book that you kind of opened with referring to. And so I think it's really important to go back and like say, okay, now we know what the facts are and lay it out in a historical sense because it's so important what they were trying to accomplish then and the groundwork in the background of people's minds that this established for what's happening today. Why it's so easy for them to say Russia was all at fault because they'll refer to things like, well, you remember MH17? It's like, wait, we got to go back. So why is this back in the news? Uh, well, yeah, and and um, on your points, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, history is often written by the victor. So unfortunately, uh, a lot of the history is very biased. And, you know, it took me a long time to learn that, yeah, because I was a history major and history professor. And then I uh, faced a lot of pushback, even in the history profession, for some of the things I was writing or uh, teaching. Uh, and it, it, you know, I came to that understanding that history is indeed written by the victor, and there, you know, the real history is often suppressed, uh, and you sometimes really have to look for that history, but it's there, and and the truth, you know, the truth is out there uh, for anyone who wants to look at it. Yeah, and in this case, well, I mean, this case is is in the news again because there was the trial. There were three, uh, uh, th uh, there were three people. You no, know, two were convicted. And one was uh, the one person because, you know, the, the Dutch trial occurred for the shoot down that occurred uh, in uh, I forget the date now. It was yeah, July uh, 17, 2014 was the date of this terrible airplane crash. The Malaysian airline jet uh, MH17 was uh, <coughs> struck down over 200 people killed. Uh, and then this trial took place. But of course, you know, the, a Russian colonel, Igor Gherkin, was convicted in absentia as well as Sergei Dubinsky. Uh, and they're both part of the Donetsk People's uh, uh, Militia. And then uh, Oleg Pulatov uh, was acquitted, and he was the only defendant to employ an attorney. But the, the trial was like a show trial. I mean, they only they include as legitimate evidence provided by Ukraine and by the United States, but they didn't accept any Russian evidence. So what kind of a trial is that? And, you know, they, were, they weren't even there. The defendants were not there. They thought it was a farce. And, I mean, the defendants, it was never even alleged that these defendants were the ones who actually uh, launched the missiles. They were, you know, they were the ones fingered because they allegedly helped supplying it. But, you know, there are some major studies, and, and my article basically summarizes a lot of what's been written by investigators. Uh, and I would give a major credit to John Helmer. Who's, That's it, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's an American who's worked in Russia for many years and were, uh, as an, an independent journalist. And he published a whole long book on the MH17. And he's written a lot of articles about it on his website. And um, um, Keyes Vanderpil is a Dutch yes. uh, scholar who wrote a very important book. And then Robert Parry, the late Robert Parry, was the um, head of Consortium News, which is a good alternative news site. And he did some important investigations. And he even interviewed American intelligence analysts. And he's passed away, unfortunately. But yeah, he was really a great investigative journalist. And he really sets a, a great standard for journalism. Uh, and, you know, sadly, I mean, I think he used to, uh, like in the 80s, he helps to expose the Iran-Contra affair and, you know, the drug trafficking by the CIA. And, like, he was writing for, you know, mainstream news sources at that time. But, um, you know, the, the media landscape has shifted since the 80s. Uh, but, yeah, his uh, work was very important because he did some interviews with U.S., a few U.S. Uh, intelligence analysts who spoke, I guess, anonymously, but they confirmed uh, a lot of what the Russians were saying and Russian uh, were pointing out uh, about how the Russians could not be culpable for this. And I mean, the evidence, yeah, if you want me to summarize well, it. Well, one thing you said that they were only allowing the Dutch and American, was it Ukrainian and American information, but they also, I believe it was, wh who was it that kept anyone other than the Americans out? Was it the Ukrainian intelligence actually kept Dutch investigators out of the scene? Well, Malaysia, yeah. One thing, I mean, Malaysia, it was a Malaysian airline. So the you know Malaysian government was obviously intent on finding out what happened. 
But the Malaysian leader at the time, Matatir, who was uh, more of an independent leader, uh, he was completely excluded, uh, you know, from the investigation. I mean, that was totally unethical and showed, you know, something was wrong here, why they totally excluded him. And he didn't believe it for a second, uh, the official official narrative. And it should be noted, one thing that's really fishy in this case is that the Americans have claimed, like John Kerry went on TV a couple days after the crash to claim that there was a satellite imagery uh, that proved that Russia was behind it, but that imagery has never been released. And they refused. So only allegedly he's the only one who's ever seen it. Uh, I remember his lies at that that, time were outrageous. And it was like, and I was reminded of this in your article, it was like at that time there was this world tour. Like, I don't know if he was going to other countries or just every news outlet or what, saying stuff like that and stuff like just look at social media. You can you can piece together what happened over there. I mean, they were really trying to build up to something, if I'm not mistaken. And it didn't seem to have taken flight at that time in the way that they maybe had their highest aspirations. But his his lies to me were outrageous at the time, totally without evidence and just blatant, straight faced lies from he was the secretary of state. Right. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, it's sad. I mean, Kerry, you know, if you follow his career, uh, you know, he emerged as a spokesman against the Vietnam War. You know, he, he served in Vietnam and he gave this eloquent speech before Congress, you know, about how uh, the leaders of the United States had betrayed the young men of his generation who were shipped off to Vietnam. A very eloquent uh, speech. And I mean, he was condemning the lies of, you know, Robert McNamara. And now he's become Robert McNamara. <laughs> yes, I mean, right. You know, and, and, and he and Biden, they were vice president and secretary of state at the time, not respectively. And their sons were both in that group of four in the financial organization that had Whitey Bulger's nephew, Devin Archer, who was convicted of corruption, and um, Hunter Biden and Chris Hines, who's... Yeah, I think it was Carrie Stepson. Carrie Stepson, right. The four of them are in a financial group that benefited greatly, or at least was elbow deep in Ukraine, as well as China. And I feel like... Those guys, you know, it's hard to separate in that case. It's so obvious that there was personal, or I should say, I'm always looking for the hidden reasoning, the hidden agenda, the big globalist plot, the, you know, world domination plot. But when I look at the Ukraine stuff, which has those elements, I also see in Kerry and Biden, these like personal corruptions that are big money, but it feels like, man, you can, tr- you can trace like the IMF money, the Rizma money to the Kolomoisky, um, you know, the media empire and now Zelensky who was made a TV star and ultimately president at Kolomoisky's media empire. Like the, the actual financial benefit from these maneuverings is really distasteful. I almost would rather they're just, they had something more grand in mind, like controlling the world, but it's like they're in it for their own pockets as well. Yeah. Well, and one thing about Kerry, uh, I uh, knew a lot of Vietnam veterans. I was doing research uh, on the Vietnam War and, and soldiers and drugs in Vietnam. So I interviewed and I was living in Massachusetts. And this was at the time Kerry was running for president in 2004. And I, I knew a, lo- a lot of people I interviewed with uh, met were part of Vietnam Veterans Against the War, and they knew Kerry very well, but they all really disliked him. Uh, they felt he was very self-serving and that he used the platform uh, he had as an anti-war spokesman just to uh, advance his own career. And then when he got into the Senate, you know, representing Massachusetts, he totally abandoned uh, the causes that those veterans continued to support, including anti-war causes, because a lot of those veterans were uh, uh, supporting the Iraq veterans against the war group and trying to organize against the Iraq war and also supporting veterans uh, issues. And Kerry just long abandoned them. So that's the kind of person he is. Yeah, that is ironic. I didn't really truly piece together that he was there in Ukraine fomenting war 
for, you know, plunder and oil and gas yeah. and lying and death and false flags and uh, back dealing and all of that. And that is really exactly what he built his career on fighting. And that's really cynical. Like, that's really a bummer. Yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. It's admirable. Yeah. Yeah. Every, you know, I've studied uh, in some depth the career of some leading political figures, yeah, especially in the Democratic Party, uh, as because as, as we've discussed, yeah, my leaning are more on the liberal side, you know, as far as like the New Deal type program that would support. But these liberals, you know, just betray the party. And it's the same kind of cynical people uh, who always get to the top. And I guess it's these kind of corrupt and moral people who have no compunction about lying uh, through their teeth about something like a plane crash you know, claiming that they have evidence, they have the satellite imagery, but oh, nobody else could see it. So only we could know uh, the truth. You know, I mean, they're hiding. What, what are they hiding? Uh, if they claim to have the smoking gun evidence, present it. And they were asked by the judge to present it. And they didn't. The satellite imagery that Kerry had claimed some years earlier. And they, they made some excuse for why they couldn't present it. And then apparently there was some kind of deal that the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Root had struck with Obama administration, uh, um, basically to cover this up. That's what Helmer presents as to why the judge accepted this excuse for why they wouldn't provide the satellite imagery. Because and still made a rule. I mean, they don't really have any proof uh, for their claims. And in fact, all the evidence, as the article goes into, indicate that it was an air-to-air -air missile, not a ground-to-air missile. And you, uh, the Donetsk People's uh, Army does not have an air force. It had to have been the Ukrainian Air Force if it was an air-to-air -air missile. And that's what the evidence from the crash site revealed. And they were That's why they couldn't out. allow the evidence. Yeah, exactly. Because if they saw the evidence, which was that it was air-to-air, -air, followed up by, I think, some bullets, yeah. they, which is crazy, like that literally assassinated the pilots in the cockpit, if I read it right, you couldn't, the Ukrainian rebels, if you want to call them that, could not have done that. Nobody even can make a claim that they would have had the capacity to do that. So they just made up this thing about Bukes, which they still, they also didn't have the capacity to do that. But you could argue, yeah, they had some anti-aircraft stuff on the ground, but you can't say they had planes in the air. Yeah. And, you know, there are witnesses who, who, <laughs> who witnessed it uh, in some of the villages. And they actually witnessed uh, shooting taking place. Um, That's right, because didn't so, one of the Ukrainian planes go down? Mm -hmm. And I think I saw a video of that back in the day. I think there was smoke in the distance from yeah, that plane like there, going there's, down. There's a huge amount of evidence. There's forensic evidence from the crash scene. There's eyewitness. And it's not just one eyewitness. There are numerous eyewitnesses. Uh, there are, um, there's a couple, a good documentary was ma made that I forget. I have to look up the name of the filmmaker. But uh, that reveals some of the, the eyewitness testimony is in that documentary. You know, he went there and interviewed people in the village uh, and they witnessed a plane shooting down. And there were there was evidence of another Ukrainian plane there. Um, and there are a lot of other fishy things like the uh, flight. The flight path was moved. Yes, that's crazy. Tell me about yeah. that. Uh, um, well, I, I have to review the fine details. You know, I, I can't remember every fine detail, uh, cause I was summarizing like a huge amount of material. Uh, well, I'll tell you that, what the article said. The article said yeah. that people, that planes were not flying over that danger zone at all. And the MH 17 flight path was not over that spot, <laughs> but they were literally directed to fly over that spot from, I guess it was air traffic control or whatever, Ukrainian authorities that lured them into that spot. And there was evidence of that flight path in, I think it's like flight aware or flight tracker. And that evidence was altered later. Like the actual flight path that was in the record originally was changed to something that looked different later. I, I think, I mean, that is the summary mm -hmm. that uh, you, yeah. when you amalgamated everything into the article that you wrote. And I recall that, but uh, I yeah. didn't realize that it was absolutely, that there actually had been evidence that was altered. Yeah. I mean, this is a major crime and, and criminal operation and cover-up uh, that took place. Uh, 
And yeah, they, um, you know, that the plane was altered to go into that territory. And they're also war game exercise. They timed it when they're war game exercises. And that's actually similar to 9-11. So it creates confusion and chaos. And people think it's part of the war game. You know, there's planes flying there. Uh, so they can more easily carry out that operation, that, that criminal operation. And there was a clear political agenda. Yeah, and, and some of the people later got threatened. <laughs> some of the people who, had, <coughs> excuse me, who had knowledge of the you know, air traffic controller, like one was threatened. Uh, Carlos, the Spanish guy. Yeah, exactly. I remember that story right at the time too. He came right out, and he, um, what you mentioned was that he he actually, I don't know how he would have known who was behind it, but he said it was um, the previous one of the, you know that. Is it Yulia, Hulia, whatever you call her, Timoshenko, who had been a president of Ukraine? She was a little bit sketchy. Everybody's always corrupt in Ukraine. Like, suppose I think every president you can look into, you can find like hearty evidence of corruption from Ukraine since the Soviet era. But she literally went to jail for it. And and from what I recall, like when she came out, they did. She was a fan favorite. And then when she came out, she was kind of nutty. So I wouldn't be surprised if she had shifting loyalties or just did whatever she had to do. But supposedly she was in on it with um, Avakov, who was some kind of, I don't know if he was the defense minister, I forget who he was, but they were supposedly in league with agents of Kolomoisky. Now, I don't know how Carlos would have known that, but I do remember at the time him saying his statements and that he was afraid for his life. Yeah, and there are a number of uh, – one guy committed suicide. Uh, another, like, went to Dubai. Uh, yes, the pilots – this operation, yeah. The pilots who were shooting down, supposedly shot down MH17, one of them ran off with the Ukrainian air traffic controller. Yeah. They supposedly, right, went to Abu Dhabi or Dubai or whatever. And then the other pilot uh, killed himself in 2018, which – yeah, don't you, even you get me started. It's suspicious when there's a suicide, you know. <laughs> yes. That this, you know, they're trying to silence somebody. Uh, and if you if you've read into like the JFK assassination or any of these major deep events, there are a lot of deaths that usually accompany them. And yes. I mean, in this case, like there's a clear political agenda. I mean, like the U.S. at this time and EU were just starting to apply the sanctions, so this gave really legitimacy. Oh, that Russia is this evil country. Look, they shot down an airplane. This really was a way to legitimize the sanctions. And this book by Keyes Vanderpil opened me up to this. Uh, there was a deal in the works between Merkel, Angela Merkel and Putin about, you know, to, to better integrate the economies of, of Russia and Germany and yes. you know, to go forward with gas uh, deal, yes. the, the Nord Stream pipeline. And this is what scared the United States because they don't want to see, you know, U.S. strategic planners don't want to see uh, Germany and Russia unified. For a hundred years, that's been a, a fear. Yeah. So they have to resort to criminal uh, activity to try and block this alliance. And look, look at where Germany and Russia are today. And, and that was even touching go kind of incidents. all the way to the end. I mean, it, Merkel was not going for shutting down the Nord Stream 2 or Nord Stream whatever, she was not down for shutting down those pipelines. It, it, it seemed yeah. to me they could not get her to do it. They had I to mean, get that Olaf in Scholz in there. It, it was, it's very clearly in Germany's interest yes. to have done this. And I mean, Germany, the close proximity to Russia, Russia, the huge natural gas supplier. And Germany so, has this so much like a no power. And somehow the U.S. has engineered it that Germany is uh, against Russia. Now Germany is paying... Uh, four times more for their gas, and it's caused a major energy crisis. So it's not been good for Germany. That's just the beginning, because what Germany did was it gave up its power. Merkel, I, I'm not a fan of hers or anything, but I've always been a little bit mystified by why she doesn't just get in line with the U.S., U.K., whatever axis, <laughs> but she just wouldn't. And I, I think now in retrospect, regardless of like her talking out of both sides of her mouth and saying that she's always been a liar or whatever, like with the Minsk agreement. But when, when I saw this guy, Olaf Schultz or whatever, I forget what, what Val's in there, but he just rolled over, just seemed intimidated and completely capitulated to what is, I would say, and I think Pierre de Gaulle would say, 
is a U.S. plot to undermine Europe and that yes. Germany has got so much power. It's the industrial powerhouse with, with Russia as the resource powerhouse. They have always, always been a threat to anybody who would compete with them for world hegemony. And I just think this this German guy was an absolute dupe. They probably, you know, finagled him to get elected in there. And but I I did not realize that they were on not only had Yanukovych cut the EU bond gas deal or was working on that with or or the Russian one instead of EU was working on that, but that Germany was in the mix there with, it said a land for gas deal. Now that was new to me. What land do you know? Or do you recall that? It said a land for gas deal was in the <laughs> uh, thing. Uh, I'm not sure all the detail. Yeah. You'd have to read this book by Keith. Yeah. Anderson. It's a whole book. I know. Um, I know. But it was, a. I mean, I think it was a mutually beneficial agreement and, and, and Ukraine was involved as well. So it was kind of like a three-way agreement. And each side was getting something good. I mean, this is, you know, how I think, you know, diplomacy should work. I mean, each side is getting something out of the agreement and not sacrificing much. I mean, Ukraine is saying they're not going to join NATO. And in return, they're getting like uh, write-offs for the bases in Crimea. And they're getting some subsidies from Russia. And Germany's getting, the, the you know, the gas. I guess Russia's getting some land. So... It's like a good deal for everybody. And so how do you break this up? I mean, you know, the U.S. can't have that these countries are working well together peacefully and, and improving their economies together. So the U.S. has to do something drastic. <laughs> they have to bomb an airplane and blame Russia and try and mobilize world opinion against Russia. So the, they try and isolate Russia. And well, yeah, it's part of a war. Yeah, the, the Pierre de Gaulle pointed out in his speech that this is also war on Europe because it's in Europe's interest to have good relations with Russia. They're in close geographic proximity and they can benefit from Russia's natural resources. And I mean, nobody wants a war. Now we're heading to uh, a new world war, a possibly nuclear war. It's just awful for everybody. And it's just like gangster. You know, the U.S. can't just live you know with the world i mean they have to behave like gangsters uh out of greed you know sheer greed i mean yeah it's it's really the u.s you know natural gas producers in texas who can make a killing by supplying europe and that seems to be the main beneficiaries of all this and well, a couple of things and okay. think of how many people had to die for for this i mean you know it's just like hijacking uh, normal way of countries, you know, dealing with each other in a positive way. It's, yeah, it's for money. All... That's what bums me out so much. Like, I just, I can't even get my mind around that. And to think, and this theme has recurred and recurred, and I absolutely believe it's true. I, I, I think I kind of deduced it was true just by seeing how the pieces were moving, that we were sending over liquefied natural gas by tanker. And I, I think, have we had this conversation before? I, I used to very briefly oh, for boy. a couple of years. I was a, um, I used to be a banker, I used to be an investment banker, but before that, like when I was straight out of college, I worked in the, it was the petroleum metals and mining group at Citibank. So they just did regular commercial loans, but I would have to like, if we had a loan out to something, I would have to just like read the stuff and write an annual report on like how their finances were and could they still pay the loan back and blah, blah, blah. It was very, it was not very glamorous, but I remember one of the companies was had liquefied natural gas and you have to build certain ports. You have to have double hulled ship. If even a drop of that stuff gets in between the hulls, it'll expand because liquefied is under a lot of pressure. And if it expands, it'll blow the whole thing up, which has happened. And I remember thinking like, and I even see liquefied natural gas, like in a truck, I'm like scared of it because liquefied natural gas, gas is really unnatural. And when they're shipping it across, the amount of effort and cost it is to put it in that format, I mean, it's much, much better to just take it from the source and pipe it to the customer. And that's why, and in one of the articles I read of yours, it said like there, I think it was Pierre de Gaulle said, it's seven to, seven to eight or nine or 10 times the price that you would pay for this cheap gas. I mean, for, sometimes they flare gas, they just burn it like it's in the way, it's, it's almost free sometimes. And that in order for Americans, the American companies to get those super high prices, they have to make the natural alternative impossible, impossible to get. 
But, but the one thing that really blew my mind in this article, which I had not seen before, and it was Samantha Powers, big, long crying story, whatever, um, it going hand in hand with this narrative that the Ukrainian rebels would not allow investigators onto the crash site when we know it was the Ukrainian authorities who wouldn't allow it because some of the Ukrainian investigators themselves said that. And one of the, the things, it was a very comprehensive article that you wrote. Uh, they said why the Ukrainians themselves kept us from really examining the site. And why would they do that if they were confident it was a Russian? They would want us there to gather all that evidence. So not only did they not allow them in there, they used it by, um, supposedly, there was a whistleblower, an Australian whistleblower, that Obama and them all were going to use that as an excuse to invade. They were, they were, they were, had one of their plans was to get like 9,000 troops and invade the Donbass to put the rebellion down that they called the rebellion. Uh, I would call it the resistance at the absolute least because to gain access to the crash site. And that's just the kind of thing that they've been trying for so long to escalate. And they were going to take back Crimea. Do you remember that part? Well, yeah, they had a whole war plan in place. I mean, I think this was going to be used as a pretext for war. And I think we have to look at this you know, historical context, as you were saying at the beginning, uh, this is kind of a first draft of history. And I mean, I think historian, of course, the victors will try and write history and obscure the reality. But there's usually a few, you know, often they call them revisionist historians who probe into the real truth. And I think this whole era we see, uh, you know, a, 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 an era of uh, a U.S. empire in decline. And I think they view these false flag, although they've done this throughout U.S. history, going back to the sinking of the main ship uh, in Havana Harbor to justify the uh, U.S. invasion of uh, Cuba and then the Philippines, uh, which they blamed on uh, Spain, you know, sinking the main. And I think we've seen that like on steroids in this era. You know, there were the false pretext about Libya and Gaddafi, you know, feeding his troops Viagra. There was the fake chemical weapon attack by Bashir al-Assad in Syria. Oh, yes, that was terrible. That's where Bellingcat <laughs> comes in, right? Yeah, and then there's this incident where they're blaming the Russians, uh, but yet they're blocking the investigation and the all evidence uh, pointing to uh, Ukrainian uh, Air Force jet. Uh, so it's part of a pattern. And they had, you know, in Syria too, they had a plan for bombing Syria, and then Ukraine, uh, what the Helmer book reveals is that there were uh, documents reveal they had a plan to go to war. Uh, <clears throat> and I think they were ready to implement that plan. Uh, for some reason, they didn't go to all out war, but they had a plan to send, you know, thousands of troops in there. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, Australia was part of the plan and they had their own troops on ready for this. So this was like the, the false flag pretext. Uh, to invade, you know, to send U.S. forces, and it's taking longer. But now, I mean, there, you know, the the U.S. has provided billions of dollars in military aid to Ukraine, and you know, they have uh, U.S. personnel are on the ground in Ukraine, and now they're bringing Ukraine to Oklahoma this week uh, to train with some of these weapon systems. So it's a slower process, but they had this design, I think, to use Ukraine as a base to attack Russia and to bog Russia down in eastern Ukraine. And this was the key pretext, just like the sinking of the main ship in the Cuban-Spanish-American -Ameri War, just like with the false uh, claim of, of a, a sarin attack by Assad in Syria. So it's it's a formula that uh, plays out you know, time and time again, but they're doing it like on steroids now. Uh, they're just like ramping up these, these operations um, you know, and there have been other false flags in the war, but but this is a key one because this is a key period right after the Maidan coup where the public is not really following much about Ukraine. And I mean, the U.S. had good relations with Russia, like Obama, when he uh, started his second term and Dmitry Medvedev was the prime minister, uh, president of Russia, he uh, promoted a reset policy uh, where they would reset and have good relations. And then suddenly that shifted in 2012. 2013. So they've got a mobilized public opinion. And this is a key incident for doing that. 
and it's clearly a false flag, and it's an atrocious one given that 300 people were killed, many children. Uh, it just shows how evil these people are. This was one of the things that I found uh, hard to sort through in the beginning. When I would watch the videos of that that plane going down, there were people, I, I saw it, I don't know if you saw this, because I don't know if you co covered it at the time, I'm sure it's impossible to find now, but there were guys in khakis, whatever, you didn't see their faces, but they were, they opened a trunk and took out a bunch of brand new passports and threw them around in at the crash site. And there were also more than one report. I haven't seen it now, but only back then. So this could be like weird, confusing disinformation, although the, the powers that be weren't as adept at flooding the zone with false information then as they are now, but that the, the bodies had seemed like some of the bodies were frozen, hadn't were like cadavers that weren't actually killed in the thing. And, um, you know, I was always really baffled by that. Like, was this, did they take a plane that was full of people and shoot it down? Or was, did they minimize the, the death toll, but maximize the propaganda value by kind of loading the cargo plane with dead bodies, like that would have probably need, required the complicity of Malaysia Airlines, but it, or at least the Sherpa Airport is where it would have been. You know, I know that's like that gets a, that sounds a little crazier than stuff that you normally look into, but there was weirdly compelling testimony of that. Did you ever hear any of that? Uh, well, in the past, yeah, because uh, for Covert Action Magazine, yeah, I started developing this series on political assassination, and I looked into a number of plane crashes, like the well Paul Wellstone when he was killed, uh, and Ron Brown was killed. Oh, uh, my gosh. Yeah, that. And there is a lot of manipulation. Uh, that was the same plane. Mm -hmm. Right. That was Ron Brown. I, I think one that of those guys was in 1994 was... in Croatia. Right. But they were the uh, head Parsons, one of them, the CEO of Parsons, which is a company that was founded by the guy, by Jack Parsons, who I have a book about him called Sex and Rockets. Like he was a Satan worshiper and he established JPL via Caltech and like Pasadena Community College. Like it was really weird. That plane crash had a lot of strange um yeah. elements to it yeah there there are a lot of strange things like in that one you know brown i think was shot in the head he was found that his cause of death was sh uh, he was shot in the head so after a plane crash uh, he may have survived so yeah uh it doesn't surprise me having looked into some of these cases uh what would seem to be you know fiction uh is actually you know truth is stranger than fiction and yeah, I mean, elaborate lockerbie that goes into this uh, Lockerbie was another one that was highly suspicious. There was evidence that the CIA needed to, there was information on that plane that the CIA needed to get taken care of that. The, remember the plane crash where the entire Polish government was wiped out. Mm -hmm. I mean that, yeah. that talk about political assassinations. I still I keep yeah. wanting to gear up to write, write articles for you. Yeah, that would be great. And if we could have you and other research, because I know I the Lockerbie case is very school. suspicious, and, that, and that's yeah. been in the news recently when they indicted this Libyan after all these years with a new Libyan government in place. Uh, but that one, yeah, the, the official story of that one had fallen through long before. So, yeah, I mean, I think all of these cases beg for more investigation. And But, yeah, you, you start to see a pattern, and you start to see that it's, you know, these are sophisticated criminal operations and, you know, they, uh, when they have, you know, militaries on their side, they can do a lot of manipulation of the crime scene. And I mean, even 9-11, like you're saying with the passport, if you look into 9-11, uh, somehow, you know, the, the passport of Mohammed Atta survived the crash. It was just like sitting there on the ground. <laughs> How would that be possible? So, I mean, there are people manipulating right. these crime scenes and these are really elaborate criminal operations with very sophisticated uh, criminals who are very intelligent in their planning ability. But, I mean, once you start researching it even just a little bit, you see that the official story don't make sense. And it's amazing. People just believe it because they don't, I guess they don't, it's like cognitive dissonance or they don't have time to look into it. So the media just like they shout Russia and they give like one or two things. 
and people just believe it because they don't really have the time to read a book about it or really probe into it. I mean, you have if you spend a few hours, you'll start to question it, but you need a good couple hours. You need to read like at least a book or two or spend like three, four hours researching on the internet. You'll start to question it, but most people are just going about their lives. They're not going to look into it more than maybe a short two-minute clip clip on the CNN. So uh, that's all they need to make the majority of the public believe it's the Russians. Because one I, of the documentaries yeah. I watched, like it, it was a very you know probing research into what happened. And then, but like, and, and he was just interviewing people in, in Netherlands off the street, you know, to get a sense of public opinion. They're like, who did this? They all said the Russian, you know, people from all walks of life. <laughs> right. Oh, that's the Russian. They and they think they know. Anything. They don't say, I don't know. Yeah. They said right. immediately, oh, the Russian did that, Putin. And he's like, they get a student, they get like a professor, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman, you know, all different classes of people. And they all said the Russian, it but none sense. really knew anything about what happened. They say it in English, like they only find people who speak English. So they're the ones who are highly propagandized or have interest in the West. I've always noticed that, too. Yeah. But I will I will add to that that I believe that there is a, a real psychic barrier that people put up that they have to get through to even begin to consider. And I had that. So I know after I was on I was on the radio for kind of like getting to the deeper truth. And I still was like 9-11. I was like, I don't think 9-11 was an inside job. You think I'm crazy? And I, I broke through that because I just, I did so much research on the Boston Marathon bombing. Like I just could not deny that the official story was absolutely not true, could not have been true. And, um, and that is when I started getting like some people like DMing me or whatever saying, Hey, I wouldn't say positive. Like that's the kind of stuff that can get you hurt. You know, <laughs> like what? So, but, but what I thought, so I remember not being willing to leave or even consider 9-11 as inside job. I did absolutely no research on it, but it was because I didn't believe that the powers that be like politicians or, you know, whatever deep state or the media could not so much that they couldn't do it, but that they wouldn't do it. Like I couldn't conceive of that, that different a morality, even in, among the elite. And I think that that's, I think there is a profound, and it was actually referred to by Brzezinski in 1972 in the American, the technotronic era. He said it is a, an elite with a, such a fundamentally different value system that you can't even conceive of it. And I think that's the psychic barrier. You can't conceive that people who look just like you, who are who you believed in, who you voted for, would kill a bunch of Americans, would draft a bunch of bankers on the 86th floor for this, you know, war in Iraq. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, and I mean, they, you know, often they come across well. Like I, I've had that, you know, with like Obama or Clinton, because you know, I did a book on Obama, and now I plan to publish a book on Clinton. And like, I mean, they come across well on the TV screen and they come across as kind of clean cut and wholesome and good, you know, moral leaders. So people just can't fathom that that's just like a public persona uh, and that these could be really terrible people. Because if you if you interview people who knew them or, you know, if you look into their background, like as I did, like I met some people who knew Obama at Harvard and they, and they said he's the worst guy, you know. And he just like betrayed all the black students. You know, neither uh, I met some black students in Harvard. They called him Alabama. Like he was just like a traitor to them. You know, he was just out for his career. And you know, and they were trying to you know do stuff on campus like for you know black rights. And like he was not their ally, and they 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 resented him. And it's worse. You know, if you interview people you know, in Chicago, some of the things he did. You know, in Chicago politics. And uh, he was just not a good person. And he was uh, corrupt in many ways. So, and then you know, Clinton was a horrible human being who uh, was a sexual predator who probably bit the apparently had a trademark of biting the lips of women who he raped, and you know, he lied you know so constantly. And it was uh, both Obama and Clinton had background with the CIA, and you know, did the most immoral thing that president. But they got away with it because they came across so well. And when you start accusing them and telling people, oh, this guy, you know, no good, you know, he's a liar, he, he should be in jail, they start to look at you funny. I mean, and, you know, uh, a lot of and people. And you're a traitor. You're a party traitor. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. 
And I, I don't know. Yeah, they, they just can't fathom. Like, you know, they can admit, like, the Iraq war was bad, but when you start to, like, talk about 9-11 being a, a false flag or, you know, then there's all kinds Because Obama covered it up. That's why they won't, you know, they people expected Obama to reveal it. And when he didn't, they decided to just close ranks and let it go. But I felt like some people, that was their moment, but... With uh, it was probably well established by the time this was going down in 2014, the Ukraine stuff that was Obama like well into his second term. So it, the writing was on the wall about him being no good, you know, not not what he pretended, yeah, not the, the guy who should win a Nobel really Peace Prize. Like Ukraine wasn't on the radar screen of most people, right? You know, they're focused more on domestic policy issues and like the liberals, you know are worried about the extremism of the GOP and like cuts to uh, social programs. So they rally behind Obama and they're not really you know focused on what's going on. So they can get away with a lot there. And I think, yeah, they can slowly mobilize public opinion because, uh, you know, I, I wrote a book called the Russians are coming again. Uh, the first cold war is tragedy. The second is farce. It was looking at the parallel between the original cold war, and new cold war, and I was looking at the public opinion polls, like around 2000, because when Putin first came into office, the U.S. and Russia had very good relations, and Putin was was uh, you know, making overtures toward the United States. And like public opinion polls, you know, they asked, uh, the, the, you know, you have a good impression of Russia, and you want good relations with Russia? And the majority of Americans said yes at that time, in the early 2000s. And then it shifted because of incidents like this by 2016, 2018, a huge percentage of, of Democrats were saying that Russia was, you know, was bad, and they, you know, they thought uh, they were a great threat, and we, you shouldn't have good relation with them, or they would support a more hostile policy. So there was a major shift in public opinion, and and that's what the, the CIA calls psychological warfare, and they use incidents like this, and and even and the evidence seems to show set up would would stoop to that level of evil of downing a, a jet or coordinating it. Uh, and killing uh, innocent children uh, so they can mobilize public opinion against Russia because they've had these designs for years because Putin was more nationalist leader than, than Boris Yeltsin. And he started to stand up for uh, Russian interests and for more independent, sovereign Russia. And the U.S. elites, yeah, that class you're referring to, who think differently, all they want to do is get in, you know, they see dollar bills in Russia. Yeah. And Russia has rich natural resources they have gas, oil, nickel, uranium. So they want uh, Boris Yeltsin. They want Navalny in there so they could send in, a, you know, open up Russia's economy to looting by foreign interests. So Putin has to go. And they want to control the oil and gas in Central Asia. Putin, a stronger leader, will assert more con Russian control over that, like in the Soviet days. So th their agenda is to remove Putin. They've said this. And they've used every kind of manipulation uh, to try and achieve this. And they've completely manipulated public opinion. But, yeah, I think the MH17 incident is really a crucial incident. And that's why it's important to examine it. And it's a major crime. Uh, you know, I, I would only hope that the culprits in this criminal act would be held accountable one day. They obviously were not in this farce of a trial in the Netherlands. No. But perhaps if more people scrutinize what happened the criminals could be uh, held accountable one day for the death of, of all those innocent people and the war that's, uh, I mean, ultimately there it's the highest crime uh, comparable to the Nuremberg crime of the Nazis because they're waging aggressive war that could lead into a world or nuclear war. And that's the epitome of human evil from my point of view. I agree with you. And I am, don't normally do this, but I wonder this article, I did not have time to read, but it really caught my mind, my eye, the trillion dollar silencer. And the subtitle is the military's deep penetration into all aspects of American life has hampered the development of a strong anti-war movement. And it, at a time when it is desperately needed, do you think you could take these last few minutes and just give me, um, give the listeners a summary of that article? Is that fresh in your mind? Sure. Just yeah. And this, uh, there's a good book uh, that I was mainly reviewing by Joan Rolos, published by Clarity Press. It's called The Trillion Dollar Silencer. 
And she asked, like, why, given what we've just been discussing, I mean, this war is not, this war in Ukraine, the billions of dollars that are going there is really not in the interest of the American public. It's not in the interest of the European public. Uh, it's not in the interest of, of anybody. Why is there not more mobilization against this or other military intervention like Syria, Libya, and all the money? I mean, the U.S., just passed the Senate passed the uh, NDAA. The, the military budget is approaching a trillion dollars at a time when there's acute needs in the country. I mean, the education system's in crisis. The infrastructure is eroding. Uh, there, you know, major needs uh, uh, domestically. There's a huge homeless population, and yet they're spending a trillion dollars uh, on weapons and war. Why are not more people opposing this? And I mean, the book has a, a a simple answer, money. I mean, they, you know, the, the military industrial complex, I mean, they, what Eisenhower warned about in 1960 has grown into an even greater cancer. You know, the military industry buy off the politicians, they lobby uh, for their interests, but even more so, yeah, she goes into how, you know, in the local environment, like her home state of Massachusetts, how, you know, they spread their money in all the states and they set up bases uh, in rural areas, so it becomes the lifeblood of that economy. And an otherwise depressed rural area that doesn't have much going for it economically, they'll set up a base there, and all of a sudden the region might flourish because they're all kind of side. You know, you have all these soldiers on the base who train there, and they have to go out to eat, and they have to get a haircut, and you know, so all kinds of store, and they have to buy stuff to furnish their home, and so. And civilians uh, work on those plants at those bases too. What's that? Civilians work at those. Oh bases yeah, too. and I mean, like Oklahoma is a good case study. Where yes, I live. there are a lot of military bases, and you know, uh, James Inhofe was very popular in Oklahoma because he inserted into a lot of the you know defense spending bills special you know I guess pork for Oklahoma you know more refurbishment for Oklahoma bases and he took care of you know, Oklahoma in that way, and I mean in a way it sustained the Oklahoma economy. I mean Oklahoma's oil. But that's other, and oil is tied to it because the military is a big, you know, the oil companies supply the military. So, um, so it, it sustained many economic, many regions economically. And, you know, people, if their livelihood is dependent on it, they're not going to, uh, you know, protest or join with an anti war move group or movement. And then she goes into how the military is very effective, like in, you know, uh, uh, you know, in you know, basically infiltrating the education system, whether through ROTC, whether it's universities, you know, the research more and more they're funding the research of a lot of professors, uh, and so it's going to lead to more you know, favorable uh, references to the military, and they fund video games. You know, they really target youth, and they fund a lot of you know video games that kind of heroize the military and Hollywood Definitely. movies. And um, what sports. else? You know, they do so many different it's things. Sports like they advertising. Fund they own football. Yeah, they fund football and they fund good program for kids. Like in these areas where they're the lifeblood of the community, they'll fund the Boy Scouts and you know programs for youth. And they fund a lot of STEM programs and schools and scholarships. Uh, so their reach is so wide. Um, that it, it's really, a, uh, it, it prevents the growth of an anti-war movement and they, they suppress the news so that they portray, you know, and, and like a lot of TV networks have former military generals or CIA officers, yeah. their analysts like MSNBC is supposedly more liberal uh, network. And so they control the narrative and putting all those things together, you don't have an anti-war movement when it's really urgently needed and it's in the interest of the American people not to spend uh, nearly a trillion dollar when it's like over 50% of the budget goes to that. I mean, we have the, the debt and, you know, uh, and we have major needs in our communities like an education, healthcare environment uh, and infrastructure. Uh, and that's where the money should be going to improve the communities. But instead it's going to the military, but there's no pushback. In the book, or it's a compilation of essays, The Crisis of Democracy by, it was one of the first, I think, I think it might have been one of the first publications by the Trilateral Commission, which was Zbigniew Brzezinski's um, brainchild with the Kissingers, Rothschilds, whatever, with Kissinger and the Rothschilds, 
where he got like eight different thinkers from different regions to talk about the crisis of democracy in the wake of the Vietnam War protests, which I can never get my mind around this, because if you look at like the Students for Democracy or whatever, Gloria Stein and people who might have been prominent in anti-war stuff, they were also like kind of CIA front. So I, I never, I, I'm not fully, I don't fully understand it. Maybe you can illuminate. Oh, yeah. That. Well, actually, I want to add that yeah. the, uh, one thing that her book goes into very well is the growth of these corporate foundations. Yeah. After the, because of the strength of the Vietnam War movement, they tried to co-opt the anti-war movement. They did it very effectively by increasingly funding foundations, uh, you know, the, the Rockefeller, the Ford Foundation. I mean, the there are many of these foundations, Gates Foundation, then even some uh, military contractors set up their own foundation, like Bechtel Foundation. Uh, and what they did was they did sponsor like community projects, but they made sure to uh, that the focus was never on anti-war activism or challenging like the political economic ordering of a class structure. It was on more like local projects, and sometimes it would serve the interests of of uh, the, the needs of the military. So, uh, yeah, these foundation became very, very influential. And then I think the abolishing the draft was crucial because one main reason. Yes. That was that's what my mother protest. says. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's cause you know, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, didn't want to go to Vietnam, you know, middle-class to upper-class people were, were, you know, had to serve in the military in the Vietnam and they didn't want to go and they were influential in organizing the protests. Once you abolish the draft, you make it an all-volunteer force. It's mostly the working class, and they're in kind of desperate, precarious position where they're joining the military for a career. Uh, and you have mercenaries. You don't have other options. Yeah, they're they're not going to protest. And people, the average person, you know, then tunes out because, or the middle class person just pursues his college degree and his professional career and lives the good life, but he doesn't necessarily have to pay too much attention to these foreign war because his ass is not on the line. So he doesn't pay much attention. He doesn't have a personal stake in it. <laughs> and they use these you know, fancy drone technology and the like that they don't have to have that many personnel like what we're seeing in Ukraine. And, and they use it by, uh, you know, they carry out wars by proxy. So they've been very effective, yeah, in sustaining American imperial power without having to use the manpower and uh, bring back the draft. So that's, the number one reason I think there's no anti-war movement. And then there's these other factors that I was discussing before. And so it's really a paltry anti-war movement. And sadly, many people who at one point considered themselves anti-war activists have supported the war in Ukraine because they blame Russia for invading Ukraine. But they're often not well attuned to the whole backstory and how Russia was provoked. And they buy into the myth that the CIA advance of an unprovoked Russian invasion, which clearly it was not. Uh, so they've been, you know, a whole segment of the anti-war movement has been silent or supporting military aid to Ukraine. And that's a big issue now. A big, should be a big focus of the anti-war movement, but they're not much of a movement. So. Well, this is where it comes in. And I have similar problems from the right that the, like Trump silences the libertarian, you know, the Ron Paul movement, like the, they take heroes within one side or the other, and they use them to silence their own side, I actually made a term, the contrary law of democracy, like the thing you're afraid of the most can only be delivered to you by someone on your side, because if it was on the other side, everybody would get together and resist it. So I really blame Obama for silencing the anti-war left that was re-emerging after 9-11, also for the drone stuff. And the um, I, even with Biden and Ukraine, I think it goes even a little bit deeper than what we were saying in that I anticipated when Trump was getting impeached for not giving money to Ukraine, that it would just de facto become, it's probably not the right years, but it would just automatically become a left thing to want to give money to Ukraine. Like Trump owned for the right that that Ukraine, um, you know, shouldn't be supported. And then, uh, and by bringing the wars from the left, that's how you silence those who are naturally kind of anti, anti-war. And I know it's, we're getting on an hour and I will just wrap it up. But 
the uh, the thing that the crisis of democracy said to do recommended, which the people who wrote the essays objected to this, but Brzezinski said, oh, so obviously we all agree if everybody are in, if people are all dependent on institutions that are not democratic, they will not um, go out and protest. If they work for the government, they're not going to resist the government. But so we are, we are getting on past that hour. I love your time. I appreciate it so much. I love your knowledge. I love what you write. I'm addicted to your articles and uh, you really are prolific. Like I used to be able to keep up. I can barely keep up now. Yeah. I'm going to have to slow down. It was taking its toll, but yes, I'm sure you're absolutely super busy, but just so that I can get you. There's so much to write about and like so much uh, that kind of, you know, scratches your head that it's almost like therapy to sit at the computer because otherwise you just want to like break the TV screen or like, yes. you know, punch a wall or like, you know, do something and destructive. So you're an academic, like you were trained for this. This is your profession. Like this is your calling. This is what you're good at. So it's really, that's, that's what I love about your work and how much I appreciate it. I do hope people support. You want to just rattle off real quick where people should go to find your stuff and anything else they need to do to support you. Uh, yeah, they can go to uh, www.covertactionmagazine.com. And they could also go to my website at www.jeremykuzmarov.com. Oh, right. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. This is Monica Perez broadcasting live from my mother's house. As you can see, if you're watching, hopefully you can't tell if you're listening. Um, so it has been super fun talking to you. Talk to you next time, Jeremy. Thank you so much. This has been Deep Dives. Deep Dives.